Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. And good afternoon and welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, catalyzed by the mid-September death at the hands of Tehran morality police of the 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman Masa Jina Amini, mass protests have occurred across Iran. How do we understand the recent mobilizations? What propels these mass demonstrations, often led by women and girls, and what might they mean and will the protests have a lasting impact? <clears throat> With us to share her perspectives on recent developments in the country is Catherine Same, currently an assistant professor of gender and sexu- sexuality studies at the University of California, Irvine. Her work uh, as a scholar and activist explores gender, Islam, and women's rights activism in Iran and the broader Muslim world. She's the author of Access of Hope, Iranian women's rights activism across borders. Well, Catherine, Catherine Same, welcome to WRT's A Public Affair. Thanks so much, Alan. It's great to be here. <clears throat> Catherine, I want to start with some broader context, context, some background that might provide our listeners wishing to better understand the mass mobilizations and ongoing demonstrations that have taken place in Iran over the past three months. I'm wondering if you could talk about some of that longer history, that the historical role, especially, of the Iranian masses, of mass protests in the streets, in the shaping of the country's modern history. Yeah, it's such a great question, and, and this moment really provides a wonderful opportunity to talk about both the uniqueness of the current struggle, but also the long history of struggle in Iran and a feminist struggle in Iran. I mean, starting with the early 20th century and the constitutional revolution, feminists were very active in trying to secure the vote, you know, throughout the mid-century. And certainly um, during the revolution, many, many women uh, became mobilized uh, because of the their protest against the, the dictatorship of the Shah, the fact that, you know, only very small groups of people were benefiting from many of his reforms. I mean, he, he made some important reforms for women, but they applied mostly to sort of middle class and elite women. So at the time of the revolution, which was a broad based mass mobilization against the dictatorship of the Shah, um, many, many women became uh, ignited in that moment. And, um, uh, in the periods following the revolution, of course, this is a you know a, a sort of better known history. Um, there were many sort of legal rollbacks against women, much to the disappointment of the masses of women who had participated in the revolution. And so, in the post-revolutionary decades, you know the the four plus decades since the 1979 revolution, feminists have been very very active in struggling for particularly legal reforms around, um, you know, rights in the law. There's a very discriminatory legal structure, which the current protests have have really made visible to the world. Uh, So women are, you know, second uh, in, in the law around divorce, around marriage, around custody, around citizenship and, and several other uh, important kind of legal points. And so, you know, particularly in the the kind of late 90s into the early 2000s during the reform movement that really ushered in reform cleric President Mohammad Khatami. I mean, some, some commentators sort of show, you know, focus on the fact that Khatami created and sort of opened up space. But I think 
from an activist perspective, it was really the, the kind of on the ground work of students, of women, of workers, teachers, who really pushed for reforms in, in this period and kind of ushered in uh, Hatami, uh, who was, who was you know, president for two terms. Uh, so there's been, you know, tremendous kind of mobilization uh, in the last hundred years and certainly in the last 40 years. So an excellent example of what's often referred to as the movements from below pushing uh, the authorities, pushing the power that be. Uh, of course, it's a global phenomenon. People talk about it here, especially in regard to Latin America and elsewhere. Uh but I hadn't really thought about it before in, in those terms until you just kind of referenced that pressure on Khatami and, and the reform mullahs. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it, I mean, like many movements, there are different actors and sort of at different scales and in different locations. But the, the, that kind of pressure from below, that sustained pressure from below, in my estimation, has been very significant in the last, um, you know, I would say the last, you know, 30 years, 20 to 30 years in particular, um, you know, a kind of, uh, again, a a constant pressure uh, working within the parameters of the post-revolutionary society. I mean, I think that's important. Well, some sectors have, have always been sort of deeply, deeply and highly critical of, of the, the Islamic Republic, um, uh, you know, at least before now, many, many groups in civil society um, pushed sort of within the parameters set for them by the government, but were very strategic and did some really interesting things. So, for instance, one of in my book, I explore a campaign called the One Million Signatures Campaign, which basically said, look, it doesn't make sense that there's a discriminatory discriminatory legal structure in a society in which the presence of women has really increased in the post-revolutionary decades through access to higher education, overall improvement in life circumstances and health and well-being for women. Um, So, for instance, you know, 60% of of women are, uh, 60% of students in, in higher education are women. And these were certainly gains of the revolution. And so activists really kind of exploited that contradiction to say, on the one hand, you've got this presence of women, highly educated, literacy rates shot up, fertility rates went way down, that kind of combined to give women um, better life circumstances than than they had had in the previous government before the revolution. And yet, there was a discriminatory legal structure imposed on them that was very much at odds with their overall presence in society. So that pressure from below to sort of reconcile um, the law to what was happening in the culture, which was a a sustained and growing presence of, of women that was very significant. And of course, it was also very contradictory. That is, while advances were made in, in, at various levels for women and girls and education, etc., there was also always a kind of, um, well, a repression, a, a control of women's bodies, a, uh, a, a strict defining at many levels of women's place. That's right. I mean, the sort of, you know, if we want to say that Khomeini, Ayatollah Khomeini was kind of became one of the most significant and influential theorists of the revolution, his idea of women's equality, which he did talk about, was very much about a kind of gender differentiated equality, right? Women's important role as fighters alongside of men, but in a very gender differentiated way. So really focusing on their role as sisters, as mothers, as wives in the family and imposing, as you said, a very discriminatory legal structure onto women. So not only a mandatory hijab, but again, uh, lesser status under the law in terms of marriage and divorce and custody of children and travel and citizenship. So this was, you know, 
incredibly significant and women and feminists and you know other activists have been fighting this you know since the 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 kind of imposition of this discriminatory legal structure um, and and really working for a long time in with reform clerics with with reform reformists in parliament to try to overturn that discriminatory legal structure and they've had some victories for instance um, citizenship formerly under this discriminatory legal structure was granted only if your father was Iranian but activists <clears throat> won uh, uh, the kind of overturning of that particular law so you can you can get citizenship now if you have an Iranian mother and a, a non-Iranian father and and so that Iran followed other places in the Middle East in in um, winning uh, uh, a sort of gender just uh, law around citizenship. So there have been some victories, uh, but many losses and a persistent discriminatory legal structure <clears throat> that, as you said, also targets women's bodies. I mean, particularly around dress, <clears throat> excuse me, and bodily comportment. And in periods of more hardline governments that focus on women and focus on women's bodies has been very intense. And so you see this recent struggle as a kind of product of that, um, that harassment and that violence from the state. You're listening to Catherine Same, who is, <clears throat> excuse me, an assistant professor of gender and sexuality studies at the University of California, Irvine, and the author of Access of Hope, Iranian Women's Rights Activism Across Borders, you know, as we usually do, we'll be opening up the phone lines at half past the hour at 608-256-2001, extension 9. If you want to join with a question, a comment, uh, join the conversation today, again, 608-256-2001, extension 9, at the half hour. <clears throat> I want to go back, circle back, that is, and talk about some other broader context for uh, well, uh, so many words we could use for the revolt, the unrest, the the str the struggle that has flared up, flared up again uh, from below in Iran. Talk about the <clears throat> the I'm sorry, the, the the context of social, political, and economic difficulty, um, the closing closing down. Uh, I imagine that the econo there's an economic crisis that's also impacted directly upon those social services and, and advances uh, that were made when, when things were, were more stable. Uh, so. Absolutely. I mean, the, the current struggle is, is you know, the, the, the Iran in which these young women who are at the heart of the struggle have come of age is a very different Iran than the Iran of their mothers, their grandmothers. Um, so that is very significant. A number of, of factors have contributed to a kind of general precarization of life, um, including um, economic mismanagement by the government, uh, you know, the, the flowing of, of money into the uh, the guard corps and the kind of um, decline of what was very significant after the revolution, which was a, a, a sort of growing middle class. Um, that middle class has all but disappeared. People have been struggling around uh, economic precarity, and there have been many protests in the last four years, you know, four to five years that were really about um, economic hardship and also against authoritarianism. So really combining those two um, incredible uh, mismanagement of the COVID pandemic by the government. And that has been extremely significant. That has been a, a terrible hardship for people. Um, all of those things exacerbated, of course, by sanctions, which have um, just contributed to the general immiseration of many, many people. Environmental crises, you see uh, many of the protests of the last 
several years have been around uh, the drying up of significant um, and very meaningful rivers in Iran and in many parts of Iran. So again, you have a kind of overall and general precarity that people have felt so deeply in the last several years. And then you have this horrific act of state violence against a young woman, woman, a Kurdish Iranian woman, which then ignited these protests and sort of gathered that general immiseration, that general anger, that very widespread anger under the sign of her death. And so in that way, this this moment is a very, very different moment. And it's why um, you see a kind of sustained struggle now entering, you know, pretty soon we'll be entering the fourth month, um, you coming on the end of three months of sustained protests. And um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, we can call it a bunch of different things, but certainly potentially a feminist revolution. I want to come back to that. It's a key to much of your argument, this potential for perhaps a, a feminist revolution, the first of its kind, maybe. But we'll come. I want to definitely come back to that. But I also another ingredient, of course, that you alluded to in the um, <clears throat> violence in the structure, the structures of repression against uh, women uh, and and men too often enough, right? Um, <clears throat> That is, one, one ingredient is this constant surveillance state, uh, very analogous to what well, we hear about China and we hear about this and that, and not enough is given to uh, what goes on here or in, or in the West uh, in regard to the ever-increasing levels uh, of surveillance, observation uh, of, of the all-seeing eye, the Benthamite uh, uh, panopticon. Um, Talk about that, that as it certainly has to add to the anxiety, the tension, the frustration uh, in the society at large. Absolutely. I think this this is one of the, you know, as, as you're saying, sort of, you know, modern forms of power that we see in many, many places. And, um, you know, that is part of the, the mandatory hijab, the sense in which you have to comport yourself in a certain way or else you will uh, be opened up as a target for violence by the state. So I think it's that surveillance. And it's also, I think, you know, that particular kind of surveillance, which as a modern form of power acts on the body, right? And women's bodies then become very key to that mechanism of power, um, keeping women in line, keeping them not only in line, but performing a kind of particular gendered subjectivity. Um, and, and, you know, that's at the heart then of this, the, the beating and ultimate death in custody um, by the so-called morality police of Masa um, Jina Amini. So yes, the, the surveillance, um, and as we know from Bentham and Foucault, right, that it doesn't, you don't even have to, you know, once you've, you've got the kind of sedimented surveillance society um uh it works at you know all of these scales and and people are surveilling each other and they're surveilling themselves and and so but yes that that kind of surveillance and securitization i mean that's been one of the main arguments um in the last four decades uh, against dissent right that um that uh dissent internal dissent in Iran undermines the collective security of, of Iran, right? This is what the, the government has said. If you're, you're weakening our cohesion um, and women, if you are struggling for your own rights or for feminism, you're weakening our national sovereignty and our cohesion. And that worked to stifle dissent for a long time. Periodically, people would you know, push back against that, but no, that argument no longer works. We see now that that a kind of uh, fear barrier has been broken, and people are absolutely not buying the state's arguments um, any longer, and really demanding a different kind of vision of society where you can have security and well-being not through surveillance 
and through state violence and through precarity and through degradation, um, but through joy and collectivity. And I think that's one of the key uh, differences in this moment is the willingness to for people to be out in the streets in a different way, in, in joy and in togetherness and in celebration. That's why you've seen so much singing, so much music, so much dancing. And I think that this is very, very powerful. It's part of what has captivated the world and to see women and girls and, and their comrades in public in new kinds of ways, uh, in a kind of life-affirming uh, modality. Take that take that a little further. It actually leads into what was my, my next question about this culture of revolt, uh, the things that, that people, that, that are, I don't know if we're getting it as as we should hear through through the mainstream media here in, in the States, of course, but there's so much that is, well, a culture of revolt, a, a celebratory, uh, creative, uh, artistic um, mode for expressing this dissent, expressing defiance of the regime. Talk about that. Absolutely. And yeah, and you know, and, and some of that's been going on for a long time. Many, many people have looked at um, scholars of, and activists have looked at, again, you know, at the sort of level of the intimate and everyday when you have a kind of repressive authoritarian society, um, where do people find their joy and find their life affirming um, modes of being. And so uh, people have looked at, you know, sort of underground music, music in the home, um, uh, you know, uh, people skirting the the sort of repressive apparatus and the legal restrictions in these in these kinds of everyday ways i think what's different is you know and then of course social media has been very significant for this younger generation who uh, doesn't have a relationship to the revolution right they're not they're not sort of bound by oh this was promised to us and we didn't achieve X, Y, and Z, therefore we're going to struggle in that framework. That's not their, that, that's not their Iran. The, their Iran is their Iran that has been suffering um, economically and, and politically and environmentally. So they have a different frame of reference. And so they've been on social media in, in a kind of different way, connecting to the world, um, seeking out joy, you know, viral videos of people dancing in the streets before this moment. Um, circulated and were very, very kind of powerful and significant. So what is a little different now is just the the more overt on the streets public nature of those celebrations. And, um, you know, the defiance is so visible and on the street, it's not just in people's homes or in these, you know, just online or sort of in these spaces that you can carve out when the state is, you know, more actively cracking down on dissent. It's a kind of um, massive and widespread um, uh, acts of, of rebellion, you know, women taping sanitary napkins up uh, on the surveillance cameras and writing, you know, um, names on them of people who've been killed or, or arrested, tons of graffiti uh, on the um, sides of, you know, public buildings. Of course, people have seen the young schoolgirls chasing off, um, you know, the, the military and paramilitary police uh, off of, of school grounds, um, you know, giving the middle finger to the, uh, you know, pictures of Khomeini and Khamenei in the schools. So just these incredible public and collective acts of using bodies and and art and music and um you know celebration and dancing um in these very novel and innovative and incredibly inspiring ways i mean the i i think that again that's part of why this movement has kind of captured the attention of the world because there's something so beautiful and joyful about it in the face of of course massive violence. So many people have been killed, including children um, and in prison. And, you know, the last 
week, there were two public executions. So, um, yeah, this, the, these acts of, of joy and celebration go a long way. No, uh, as I was preparing for the program uh, past few days, I looked at images, uh, Google images or whatever, and lots of photos of women cutting their hair. What's the significance of that? Yeah, so, you know, this is, um, uh, you know, we saw this early on in, in, in the protests um, the, after uh, Masajina Amini was killed, for supposedly not wearing her hijab properly. Um, so this this idea of, again, sort of targeting women's bodies, uh, targeting uh, their, this idea that they need to comport themselves in a certain way. Um, so this has been, uh, again, a kind of both the throwing off of the hijab, the burning the hijab, and the cutting the hair in the street has been a way of saying, um, uh, you don't own our bodies, right? We own our bodies and we, um, women's bodily autonomy will not be sacrificed in the struggle for uh, uh, Iranian sovereignty, right? That these two things, um, the, the autonomy and the sovereignty of women and their bodies have to be part of the vision of what it means to go forward as a, as a free and democratic society. You're listening to Catherine Same. We're talking about the ongoing, well, revolt, demonstrations, mass mobilizations against the regime in Iran. Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, if you want to join us uh, with a question, a comment, an observation. Again, 608-256-2001, extension 9. You know, uh, Catherine, much of the mainstream media reportage has focused on the issue of the compulsory hijab or, or, or headscarf, as we've talked about. But you say that that has not been the central or most pressing issue around which women have organized. Um, what are some of the overriding issues? You touched on them, of course, but the whole issues, all these issues of citizenship status, of rights and marriage and divorce and so on. What else is central key to understanding the intensity, really, uh, and, and the size and scope of these demonstrations? Sure. I mean, I, I don't want to downplay the significance of, um, you know, feminists fighting the compulsory hijab. Certainly, that was, you know, one of the first demonstrations after the revolution uh, was against Khomeini's uh, mandate for compulsory hijab a huge feminist demonstration. Um, but I think particularly in the sort of reform period, late 90s to sort of, you know, 2004-ish, um, there was a kind of, you know, uh, relaxing and sort of opening up of society. And, you know, where the, the morality police are sort of always around, but you had a sense that, oh, you could, you know, wear your headscarf a little more loosely with hair showing and um uh there it you know maybe in big cities especially or you know tehran or you know the more sort of urban centers there was a sense that you know this we're living with this okay it's it's not great but you know we're we're gonna you know, wear the headscarf, but maybe wear bright pink headscarf or wear it, wear it more loosely. Um, so, and then of course, for some, some women, it, it, even now, right, they are choosing to wear the hijab alongside of their sisters and daughters and, you know, mothers who are taking off their hijab. So there, there, of course, there are always uh, women in Iran who um, don't find the practice um, oppressive and we'll make that choice. It's, so the struggle is really about the choice. So this is a long-winded answer, but a way of saying that it it has been one of the demands to end this compulsion. But I think at least in the reform period in the in the reform era and and then you know in into the the 
um, you know, post-reform era, era when, when the government began turning a little more rightward. Um, yes, rights in marriage, rights in divorce, rights in inheritance, custody of children, um, overall kind of broad-based legal uh, equality and autonomy for women became the kind of focus, at least for women's rights activists, who felt like in these moments of more progressive or reformist governments, they could potentially win some of these um, these uh, reforms in law. Uh, again, working with progressive members in parliament, progressive clerics, having debates in the society. I mean, Iran has historically been a rich, a culture rich in debate, lots of newspapers, debates within at least the parameters of, you know, sort of politics as usual, you could, you could really talk about this. So activists worked with reform clerics to say, there's nothing Islamic about <laughs> these legal discriminations that that's, that's not a mandate of Islam. In fact, Islam has a, a very kind of ethical um, message at its core. Uh, and so this legal discrimination is really man-made and, and is about a kind of patriarchal interpretation of Islam. And so that was kind of the strategy, really trying to um, kind of maneuver and work kind of pragmatically around reforming uh, uh, these laws particularly, uh, again, when there were reformist governments in power. Um, but that, of course, has changed the kind of formal reform period um, and reform struggles, I think people feel are, you know, um, maybe over. And uh, it's there's been a kind of I think deep cynicism about the possibility for any kind of major reforms in the law um, under the current government. That leads again. You're you you making it easier for me. <laughs> that is, it leads nicely in, into my, my next question, and that is the f- the fact that elements in this crowd in these crowds uh, are calling for an end to this res- Islamic Republic. They're calling for uh, well, revolution, and it gets back to our earlier discussion uh, that we touched on in, in regard to this feminist revolution that is part of it. Absolutely. This is a really strikingly new moment because activists are, and people in the streets and in the larger society are kind of united in their call for an end to the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, you know, I think it remains to be seen will this be a, a kind of revolution in the, the classical sense of the world word? Will it be a kind of, you know, um, revolution that unfolds more slowly over time? We don't know so much is unknown, but what we do know is that yes, people um, don't believe in the possibility of reform under this government any longer. And they are seeking an end to uh, this government. And um, that is a, a very striking departure from from the past and incredibly significant. And um, yes, we, we don't know what the outcome will be, but um, I, I do think there's, as we see often in these upsurges and moments of incredible revolutionary potential that maybe don't play out as full-scale revolutions, you know, what's the residue of those moments? And I think that there will be, no matter what happens, incredible residues um, that are driven by the kind of feminist imaginary and dream that we see in the streets of creating, you know, a more sustainable society, sustainable economically, environmentally, and also politically um, that doesn't you know that that imagines a world in which the state does not have to um, enact this kind of violence against its citizens that imagines uh, more 
feminist and democratic relations among people. Um, and you see that in that sense, people have already won. There is a, there's a kind of um, uh, way in which, you know, women and girls have won because they've uh, for a long time now. And, in, and then in this moment kind of building on the past, they have challenged their, um, you know, they've challenged patriarchy at all of these levels and they're winning in that sense. Um, the, they have many men and, and other genders supporting their struggle with them in struggle. And so I think whatever happens, uh, they, they've been victorious and sort of really putting out there that uh, a new world um, can be made together. A new world is possible. Um, 608-256-2001, extension 9. And of course, though, there's also the counter-revolution, right? It's not just uh, the progressives or, you know, that are on the street, um, people demanding change, but it's also... There's been large mobilizations of, of, of the contras, of citizens tied to the regime, of of uh, people having st- uh, whatever stake, ideological, political, material, uh, in the way things are, um, and that that's also been part of that longer arc of history of the crowd, the crowds, uh, plural, uh, in the streets of Iran historically. No, that's very true. And, you know, of course, you still have the, the, the guard corps, which is very big. Um, you know, unlike uh, the revolution of 1979, uh, where you, you know, you had a kind of broad based movement against a, a small but very powerful elite. Now you have a very big elite <laughs> that is armed and um, willing to, to use excessive violence. So, I mean, that's, that's a huge problem and a huge barrier. Um, people, it is incredibly awe-inspiring and nerve-wracking and, you know, just quite amazing to see people um, stand up in the face of that kind of uh, state violence, you know, and violence at the, at the disposal of the state. Um, and then, yes, of course, you know, people, families tied to the Guard Corps and, you know, tied to the the government. Um, yeah, of course, you always, it's not that every person has the sort of same ideological and political um, position. That said, I, I think, you know, there's, there's still a kind of society-wide um, and broad-based sense and you know desire for change um that the the government is having a hard time squashing you know and and you can't actually it's impossible you 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 can kill many people but you you can't completely um squash this burning desire that is you know propelling people into the streets and with every you know, sort of response from the state that is a crackdown or violence or, you know, beating or um, arresting people, it mobilizes, it continues to mobilize people um, across the society. I mean, that's the other thing that's very different about this moment, um, that there's, you know, it's not just the sort of cities and, and, and towns, but it's every province, right, of Iran you see protests. Um, and of course, the fact that Gina Amini was a Kurdish Iranian woman is very significant. So you have the kind of um, coalition of ethnic uh, Kurds, Baluch, you know, um, different ethnicities involved in a way that they haven't been, you know, previously, because they've been very shut out of the kind of mainstream Iranian society, they haven't benefited in the same kinds of ways that, um, that you know, sort of non-ethnic uh, Iranians have. So, um, yes, you have counter forces, but uh, there's 
there's a lot of kind of solidarity and collectivity happening with many sectors of the society that is is going to be hard to to break up even though the government is trying you know crack cracking down more severely on the kurdish regions and blaming the kurds but again people aren't buying that uh, they're really um they're really you know in solidarity with each other as is so often the case with this program we it's getting toward the end of the hour but we have callers a or a caller on the line at this point hello tom you're on the air Yes, uh, hello. Um, maybe uh, you've touched on this, but I was wondering what is the Biden administration, how are they observing this? And, um, you know, I was wondering if uh, this is kind of an opening, uh, you know, like for the CIA to start mucking things up, too. Thank you. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a great question. And uh, I would say that my answer would be like a, a big question mark. Um, it's certainly not my area of expertise. I'm I'm kind of looking more and interested more in sort of the pressure from below. And it's very hard to know what kind of pressure to um, exert on the administration, of course, because as you sort of point out, Western intervention has been historically everywhere uh, deeply problematic and and um, tied to, you know, the U.S.'s own economic um, kind of neo-colonial interests in the region. That said, I think um, you know. Uh, <laughs> again, I, I'm sort of you know, I feel like the most important thing is for people to, you know, people to people exert uh, expressions of solidarity, go to solidarity rallies, really try to make links between the um, kind of state violence and conscription of women's bodies into patriarchal authoritarianism, make those links to, you know, the bans on abortion and reproductive care for women in the U S the, the bans against wearing hijab, for instance, in India or in France. Um, but I, I, I'm sort of skirting around your question, Tom. I think it's a good question. I think that, um, you know, there, I think the U.S. administration is, is doesn't probably want to um, jeopardize its own interests. Um, and you know, also to Biden's credit, I think there's there's a sense in which uh, the administration is sensitive to the kind of critique of Western intervention, and I think that's a good thing. Um, that said, I think uh, you know the sanctions. I mean, this is a debate in the Iranian diaspora. It's a debate in in, in uh, among the movement, but I think sanctions have been really, really detrimental. Um, you know, some people are calling for really targeted sanctions that target just, you know, Khamenei and, and his family. I don't know how effective those are, if they actually can work in, in that really targeted way. But overall, economic sanctions have have only legitimized the Iranian government's use of violence, right? Because they say, look, we're being attacked by, by the West. So, um, I, I probably am not sufficiently and adequately addressing your question um, because uh, it's a it's a fraught one for sure. Yeah. But I, I do think you know the the kind of solidarity from below, the transnational solidarity from below, is deeply important. And and I think that we're in a new moment in which we can say, look, you can argue against Western intervention, war sanctions and at the same time argue for what the people in Iran are arguing for which is an end to the government and its repressive policies and that those can go hand in hand um, and we don't we don't have to make a choice let's get in we have a final caller caller it looks like for the hour Helena hi you're on the air well hi um, I'm somebody may have already asked this question but First of all, I wanted to say thank you so much for being on the show. It's been really, really interesting learning about the what's going on in Iran. And I love the sound of the feminist revolution. That's 
just wonderful and makes me want to learn more about what's going on there. I guess my question is, um, what can we do in the U.S. to help support this this uh, revolution that's going on in Iran? Thanks very much. Thank you so much for that question. It's a great question, and I think we should all be asking it. I think, um, you know, if you can go to teach-ins online or in person, um, you know, at your university or high school nearby, there have been a lot of different events. Um, you can uh, write statements of solidarity, possibly, say if you're in a workplace. Um, I know a lot of teachers in, in the U.S. Um, have been involved in uh, writing statements of solidarity with the teachers in Iran. The teachers uh, and the university professors in Iran have been incredibly mobilized in this current struggle and historically. So um, thinking about, you know, where where does it make sense for you as a worker, as a citizen, as an activist, as a feminist to uh, be in solidarity and, you know, can you work, can you contact the, any local uh, Iranian diasporic groups who are holding protests or rallies? Um, and then I think making links, right, to say that this is both an amazing struggle on its own terms. It's incredibly inspiring. We have so much to learn from these women and girls and, and other people uh, in Iran. And we are with them in their humanity and against our own uh, struggle and, and with them in solidarity with our own struggles against, um, you know, the oppression of, of women and others by the state. So both you know, celebrating the uniqueness of the struggle, but also making links across what the issues are against state violence, against incarceration, against um, the uh, the targeting of women um, and their bodies. So thank you for that wonderful question. Catherine, we're getting very close to the end of the hour. <clears throat> and I wanted to come back to the slogan of at least the... the the feminist sectors of this mass mobilization going on of women, life, and freedom. I understand it has origins, you know, we referenced the fact uh, uh, that Imani was a a Kurdish Iranian, uh, and I understand that slogan comes out of the Kurdish movement uh, uh, within the broader region, the revolutionary Kurdish movement within the broader region. Yes, it absolutely does. Um, Gina, her Kurdish name uh, means, you know, life giver. And so her parents, you know, and on her tombstone said, you know, you, this is what your name means, and you will be a symbol of the struggle. So it's not just feminists, um, it's everyone united under that slogan of woman life freedom. And I think it's very, very powerful and very, very beautiful and can capture a new politics, you know, one that builds on, like you said, the long history of Kurdish women's liberation, which is very intersectional, connecting the oppression of women to the oppression of ethnic minorities. And, um, you know, it's a gender, race, ethnicity, class, uh, intersectional struggle. So everyone has been captured by this slogan because it, it, it connects many issues economically and politically um, and also I think argues for a, a different politics moving forward one informed by women's and girls experience um, as as particular kinds of experiences that they have both in terms of the kind of violence of the state but also in political movements where their desires their autonomy their insights are always sidelined and said, oh, no, we'll deal with that sort of after the revolution. This time, no. Women and girls are at the heart of this new movement and of a kind of vision of society moving forward. You know, of course, you, you to me anyway, you, you reference something that, that's quite old. Uh, that is, women have always been in the forefront of uh well, struggles against authority, struggles against the state, uh, struggles against exploitation and, and oppression, um, whether it be in, well, in the Italian workers' movement or here in the U.S., uh, you know, the 
marches and mobilizations, not just for reform and um, recognition, uh, but for, well, a better world is possible. And, and so that, that's one of these constants that get, even gets lost in the history so much that, oh, gee, women were participating. Well, well yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and so on. It's so obvious once, once the lid is lifted, the veil, no pun intended, but the veil is torn away. Sure, that's so true. I mean, and this is true in Iran. Women have always been at the heart and center of, of political struggles and of, you know, at the everyday uh, efforts to change um, their society for the better. I think what's different now is a kind of um, not only saying, look, women have always been central and we're central now, but what do our experiences tell us about what kind of society we want? Right. If we take the experience of women under patriarchal authoritarian states, which are really, you know, these these are the kind of states that are emerging around the world. What does it mean to center the experiences and then the the dreams and visions of women going forward? Well, Catherine Sami, I want to thank you ever so much. We're right down toward the end of the hour. It's been, uh, well, it's been an illuminating hour for me, and I hope our listeners uh, uh, got a, can take, are taking away a lot from it. Uh, it certainly um, enrich, enriches, uh, the, well, it goes far beyond the mainstream media's portrayal of any of this. So again, I want to thank you very much. I want to thank Jade for engineering and producing. I want to thank Charlie per usual. Um, I want to thank you, our listeners, our few callers. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. From underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, low precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning, afternoon edition. Commandeering airways from unknown positions.